You know those moments Sharon spoke of in her talk on delusion where you suddenly are sitting there and you go, where am I? What am I doing here? I just had one. (laughs) Okay. um, Something that I've been reflecting on a lot lately, it just seems to be coming up in my experience to my attention is, is what I see as one of the great paradoxes of our lives, of this practice. And it's how, as we open, as we become more mindful, we open so deeply to such an immensity of suffering. And at the same time, we're opening to such an immensity of beauty, of love, of, of joy, appreciation. And the paradox is somehow how to hold both of them, not to let one experience deny the other and yet continue to be open for both. And I've just been seeing this come up a lot. Two small examples that came to my mind when I was writing this, and you can see it yourself all through the day. Uh, the first, um, one of these beautiful golden days we've been having, I went out to a reservoir near here and was walking in the woods by myself. And it was so exquisitely beautiful. You know, the golden leaves and the light filtering down and the water. Such a sense of um, sublime peace and rightness, kind of, with the universe. And it was very inspirational a sense of surrendering completely into that moment to the rightness of the Dharma, a willingness to surrender my life to whatever service of the Dharma was appropriate, all those feelings, and it's a real experience. And then the next memory in that moment was of a friend's remarking that the leaves reach are reaching this height of beauty as they're dying gesture that that this all this beauty is the preparation for death of the leaves of many of the plants in the forest and that's not necessarily a depressing thought but that both aspects are inherent in the same situation and the second example is kind of coming from the other side Uh, A couple days ago, a friend on staff told me that Terry Anderson, you know, the man who's been um, a prisoner in Beirut, it's going, it's five years now. And so she told me she'd heard that he was celebrating his fifth anniversary in captivity and that she'd heard he spends most of his time in a cave chained to the wall. And so the, just to imagine that, And the thought of sending, trying to open one's heart to what he might be going through, send some metta. And in the doing of that to myself, and this is all very brief, um, feeling the beginning to flow of a sense of compassion and uh, unbelievability at what this person's enduring. But out of that came the beauty of compassion and the sense of all of our connectedness that in a way that isn't happening separate from us. And at the same time, then knowing that 
the same metta and compassion must also encompass the, his captors, that they're also suffering. And that's also a part of our existence. So you see what I mean. It's as if both extremes are encompassed in many of our experiences, even the most simple. Because the suffering, both our own and others, can so often seem so unbearable, and we spent so much of our lives guarding against feeling the depth of it, of necessity, um, we spend a lot of our practice learning to open to suffering, face it, acknowledge it, to see the nature of the afflictions in the mind, how they create more suffering when they're not seen and identified with. And this is necessary. It leads to this opening of the heart, a great depth of wisdom and compassion. But at times, it seems like we can get almost unbalanced in our focus on looking at, say, the well, negative qualities, for use of a better word. On, we see greed, hatred, and delusion so much that we forget that that's not actually the intrinsic nature of our mind. It's real easy to identify when we come and think about how much grasping we've seen in a day. It's easy to think, my God, it's hopeless. This is the nature of the mind in my existence. We forget that they are covering, that they're hiding the intrinsic pure nature of our mind and heart. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight, just to remind you to us that our practice, yes, it's about opening to the unpleasant, to the difficult, to seeing its nature with mindfulness, with equanimity. But it's also about acknowledging the beauty, the, the other qualities of mind, the nature of the mind when it's not dulled by confusion or grasping or anger. Can we learn to equally acknowledge and experience both aspects, the unbearably painful and also the unbearably sublime? So I want to talk about some of the pure, positive aspects of mind tonight. Classically, these are described as, in kind of negative terms, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. But they're really much more than this kind of passive, neutral quality. They're really very active, growing, outpouring qualities of mind. Non-greed can also be described as some of the qualities to describe it is generosity, thoughts and actions of sharing, even of sacrifice. It's also non-attachment, renunciation, simplicity. Non-hatred, 
again, it's not just kind of this passive sitting still like a rock, nothing's going to incite my anger. It's also the very positive outpourings of the heart of metta, loving-kindness, compassion, forgiveness, patience. And non-delusion is that kind of brightness of mind that we all experience on retreat when the perception is so bright, so clear. And this leads to growth of great insight, equanimity, and understanding. And I'll talk more about these later. What's important, I think, for us to continue to recognize as we go through our practice here and also in our life is that not to see these as some goal out there, but that on a moment-to-moment basis, these qualities are present in our experience. In moments when the unwholesome states of mind aren't present, when we're not clouded by greed or anger or confusion, these positive qualities, various ones of them, are present. And as our mind purifies more through our mindfulness practice, these qualities shine out even more strongly and more often. And I think it's important for us to also recognize and acknowledge them when they're present, not just to acknowledge the difficult, and also to know that there are ways to cultivate these qualities, of which, of course, mindfulness is the most powerful in which I'll mention a little, but I also want to talk about some other ways, sort of broader ways to cultivate these qualities. First, I want to say that often I've found in my own experience and in talking to other people that when, when we talk about the really uplifting qualities of mind, whether it be the possibility of freedom, enlightenment, or of the development of a sense of real boundless loving-kindness, of a state of non-attachment. Even though it's, it's meant to be inspiring, often I find that it has quite the opposite effect. That often people will say, God, just hearing about enlightenment turns me off completely. I mean, that's for somebody else out there. It's not for me. And rather than bringing in inspiration and energy to investigate, brings in a sense of, well, I can never do it, so what's the point? And a kind of heaviness and listlessness can result. You know, there's always someone better, always someone to compare ourselves to that's better. And so it can serve the opposite purpose. So hopefully that's not my intention. And I want to share an experience that helped me to see, to see how this actually could be inspiring. Well, I think one of the reasons that hearing about, I don't want to talk about goal, I don't even mean goal, but just the possibility in this moment of living with these powerful qualities of heart and mind, one of the reasons it can seem discouraging is just this tendency to accent the negative. That when we hear about, say, the possibility of cultivating boundless metta, all we see is our boundless anger and hatred. 
And that's all we know. We don't notice the moments it isn't there. Think about if you've done something that, like put yourself out and you get feedback from people and it's something you're unsure about. And ten people tell you that it was really nice, it was great. And two people give you really negative feedback. Which ones do you remember? Which ones do you give the most weight to and believe? And I know for myself, there's times I'll completely discount the positive feedback. They're crazy or they're just being nice or anything one wants to say. The negative one believes. And it's often like that with our moment-to-moment experience. So often when I'd heard about enlightenment or hear people talk about it, I know Upandita mentions it a lot in his talks. He'll often talk about Nibbana. And sometimes it's inspiring and sometimes I think if he mentions that one more time, I'm going to lose it because it's just it's somewhere else. Somebody else can do it, not me. This uh, winter I was in Bodh Gaya in India for a few weeks and that's... Um, the small village where the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and um, came to his full understanding and enlightenment before he started teaching. And there's quite a beautiful temple, big stupa there, and a descendant of the tree that you can go and sit near and then people circumambulate the temple. And it's in a little park right in the middle of this village. I'm not usually... Uh, very moved or inspired by shrines or temples. Um, It just isn't what moves my my heart usually. But we went and sat down in the midst of all the craziness there and started to sit. And I was so moved, I started to cry. And as I reflected or just kept sitting, I saw that what it was is it brought the whole, what it seemed like a myth of this person, the Buddha, some special, unbelievably special person who achieved this miraculous thing, it brought it down to earth. I mean, we were sitting, it was just this place in this little dirty Indian village under a tree. And it made the whole thing really human to me, really much more possible. Like, oh yeah, this Buddha, he was a human being with suffering, trying just like I am, just like all of us are. And maybe it's not some esoteric myth so far away that it has no relationship to my life. Maybe it's something that is really possible. And it, it was deeply inspiring to me, just in the sense of bringing the whole thing down to earth. And it gave a sense of energy, a sense of real commitment. Commitment not to have to go somewhere else and achieve some kind of other state separate from life. Because the other factor of this experience is this temple is in the middle of the whole show. When you're sitting there, there's hordes of tourists coming through in droves, ties with their microphones, and Hindus just chattering really loudly, and and Zen Japanese groups. And there was about 25 Tibetan monks sitting on the hillside for days, chanting, and blowing horns and um, a very mentally disturbed woman who'd come running up and scream, you know, the whole time you're there and then go away. 
and starving dogs and rows of beggars you have to walk through to even get up to the temple in the first place. It's not like you're out in some sublime place, you know. And I kind of got it, oh. You know, the inspiration wasn't a sense of denying or aversion to life, but of being able to embrace the whole, but not to get lost in it. It's the inspiration was to be fully present, but to devote one's energy to the development of wisdom, so that one's fully present, knowing that it's impermanent, that it's insubstantial, that none of the things that happen are going to bring me lasting happiness. But for that reason, one can be even more fully present and participating. And that inspiration it comes and goes, but it, it's it stayed with me quite deeply since that time. And since then I've understood more how talking about the possibility of developing non-greed isn't something to say, oh, forget it. It's like, right, this is something that happens in this world. There are many moments of it in my experience right now if I just am willing to open and pay attention to those equally. Sometimes also I feel that it's as if we're almost afraid to open to the power of these positive qualities of our experience. A moment of what feels like really pure love or forgiveness or compassion, generosity, a sense of selfless generosity or an upliftment of joy just at you know, the way the foot feels when it lifts off the floor. It doesn't have to be about something sublime. And sometimes it almost seems harder to open to that fully than to the pain. Kind of some people have said things as if they don't trust that it's real. Again, it's back to the self-negative. Well, I'm just such a kind of blind dumb person, I couldn't experience this level of joy or this level of peace. So it must not be a valid experience. You know, we find ways to discount it. So be aware of that. Trust one's experience. The thing that I find in myself strongly is that sometimes it seems hard to fully take in these, these moments of non-greed or non-hatred, of clarity, because there's such a poignancy in them. They're so deep and powerful, but there's also a knowing right away of their impermanence. And that even grasping at this, you know, as soon as the grasping comes in, it's gone. In fact, the grasping actually destroys it. And sometimes it's as if, well, if I really open, it's just going to go away, I'm going to grasp, I'm going to suffer more, so forget it. And Let's just be aware of this when it happens. You know, learn to trust our experience. Really open, experiment with opening to it, and so grasping comes along fine. That's the next experience. But we don't have to shrink away from opening to the power of the beauty of these experiences. And in fact, the more we do this, we find that we don't have to be so afraid of grasping. It comes or it doesn't. It's another experience. 
But in the moment we learn to say an experience of joy or appreciation, to open to it even more fully, we appreciate it even more deeply because we know that it's impermanent, that clinging and grasping is besides the point. And so there's a huge energy, a total vitality of presence just to experience it as it is. And when it goes, it's gone. That's okay. So, what are, more specifically, these qualities of heart and mind that I'm talking about? My intention had been to talk about all three, but I see I'm not going to get past non-greed tonight. But So we'll talk about that. As I said, non-greed, a state of non-attachment, of generosity, it's not at all a neutral, passive state. It's more the state of generosity. It begins with non-attachment, the dissolving of attachments, small attachments in the moment, larger attachments. But it turns more into like a giving out, a spilling out of that energy out into the world, out to other people, other situations. It's it no longer just being kind of enclosed in on ourselves. It's kind of like one way of thinking of the state of attachment is a state of mind that where we compulsively refer everything back to ourself. You know, what do I want? What don't I want? This is in my way. This is nice. What do people think about me? How do I look? Just we refer everything back, kind of a state of attachment. As detachment grows, non-attachment, not only are we free of this, which is really exhausting, but we become be more free of it, that energy that's going into that, clinging into that referring back, you know, it's, it's accessible. It can move outward into much more generous, open quality of energy, movement of the heart. And naturally generous impulses, expressions of love, of sharing, of service, these come to be the natural expression of the force of non-attachment or non-greed in the mind. Now this force, it arises often and it strengthens naturally through our mindfulness practice, which we're working on quite a subtle level here, kind of the level of moment-to-moment arising and passing of our experience. And in this level of seeing things arise, seeing the attachment arise, and turning our mindfulness to it, often in that moment, the mindfulness itself helps to dissolve the attachment. And at any rate, in the moment that we're mindful, the attachment is not being strengthened, the mind is being purified. So the mindfulness itself is a very powerful force for the further cultivation of non-greed, for the strengthening of the outflowing of unselfishness, of service. And so mindfulness is one way and maybe the most powerful way to cultivate this. But also like to talk about another way to strengthen this quality of mind. And again, it's important to notice it when it's present too. 
but by the actual practice of generosity itself. As a practice, it strengthens even more this quality of non-greed in the mind. And the practice of generosity is a very powerful practice. In Pali, the word um, for generosity is dana, which we tend to use a lot, throw around a lot. It kind of encompasses more in a way than, than just the word generosity. And it's a practice in itself that can actually be used as a path to freedom from suffering. If we're working with it in that way, it can be used as a path to purify the mind. And it's a very powerful adjunct to our mindfulness practice. In the scriptures, the three trainings of the mind often talked about are dana, the practice of generosity, and sila, the practice of morality, bhavana, practice of mental development or meditation. And dana, so dana is given a very important place in our path to freedom. It has many aspects, of course, any thought of giving plus actual giving of resources or money or time, energy, sense of unselfishness, working with renunciation, simplicity of life and desires. Even our meditation practice itself can be a form of dana. And this is, when we're working with it as a path, very important to recognize, as with all our actions, it's not just the outer action itself that's purifying, that strengthens the non-attachment, but it's our inner intention, the motivation that engenders the action and that follows through with it, the attention we give it. And so this is a very important point. And of course, our mindfulness practice is what enables us to really tune in so well to the intention. I learned an immense amount about the practice of dana as a practice when I was in Thailand. Somehow I feel my own perception is that in our culture, uh, generosity as a path isn't given as much weight or thought about so much. I mean, generosity is a good thing and we all kind of applaud it, but to really use it as a way to develop one's mind and heart to come to freedom isn't so much looked at. In Thailand, it's a very powerful part of the culture. I was there for a year as as a nun, and from the moment, even before I ordained, from the moment I set foot in a temple and started to stay there, this outpouring of generosity and support was just overwhelming, and it never stopped. I mean, I just have endless examples. And what struck me the most about all of it is that it was done with such a spirit of joy, of appreciation. I was literally made to feel that I was doing all these people a favor by letting them give me food or give me robes or give me a place to stay or take me to the train station or just endless series of little things. And it wasn't just for me. 
You know, being a foreign nun, you do get special attention. That's true. But it wasn't just just for me. And I was staying at a small uh, temple in the north, and there was only about five kutis, little huts, for the nuns. And it was a practice situation, so all the nuns were practicing. And in temples, you never know who's going to come. People just show up. And if 20 people show up, they'll find 20 people, places to stay, and joyfully, and food to eat. And very often, uh, a group of nuns would just arrive, and the head nun there, who had been there for some years and was the main teaching nun, would, with great joy, and I'm not exaggerating, move out of her hut up into this little cave up, up high above the rocks so that the visitors could have her hut. And then because I was you know, a special foreigner, they would never um, discomfort me by putting someone else in my hut or asking me to move. They would all move out of their huts, all clumped together. And I would sit there and think, gosh, I had just come from, well, no, it had been a few years, but I had been on staff here before that. And I thought, boy, find one of us moving out of our room for a yogi, you know. You think, we're going to double up for a night? Forget it. And, and when we're doing real service, it's not like we weren't, but I thought, whoa, we don't know the first thing about real generosity of heart. And again, I want to emphasize it's, it's really the uh, working with it as a path is what I think gives it so much power. It wasn't personal. It wasn't, people weren't being nice because they liked me or they liked these nuns. It was a, a path for these people of growth in their spiritual life, in opening the heart, growth in non-attachment, and also an expression of their pure love of the Dharma. And it was the rule, not the exception. Very rare to meet with anything else. And in observing this over and over, I really came to see how as a practice, you can't act with this generous spirit over and over and do it out of resentment or anger. You just can't keep doing it that way. You can do it a few times, but as you continue to act from generosity, even if sometimes it's a little forced, and you're really paying attention to your, your motivations, you find that you just can't keep the resentment and the anger or a sense of being put out going. Because generosity, the actual action of it, works to help drive away the unwholesome qualities of mind, the afflictions. And so as you continue to act in a more generous way, the unwholesome mind states arise less frequently. They're not so present. And this is true. It doesn't have to be always, you know, again, I have to have incredibly pure motivation of giving or else it's no good. I'm just pretending. It can, we can observe this in ourselves even with what they call beggarly giving. You know, they give three categories of giving and the first one is beggarly giving where you give something but you don't really want it anyway and maybe you know, this person could use it and then maybe they'll like me. And so the, the motives are mixed, but there is the force in, that mind, in the mind, in that giving, there has been the attachment to that item has been dissolved somewhat, or you couldn't give it. There's some sense of kindness, some sense of affection. You know, we start where we are. And in doing that, see that not only, you can't really do that with a lot of unwholesome qualities in the mind, and not only does it drive away the unwholesome, but it serves to strengthen the wholesome qualities 
the qualities of non-attachment, of interrelatedness. Because to give something, first you do have to. And to some extent, the attachment to that object isn't strong. It has been dissolved, or you couldn't really give it in the moment of giving. It might come back later and you'd wish you didn't give it, but that's another thing. But in the moment of giving, it's been dissolved somewhat. And it's hard to give without some affectionate, loving, caring feeling. I mean, you can't just go and throw something at someone, you know, that hardly counts. But with any kind of sincere looking at our motivation, doing it as a practice, and when you're really being honest with yourself, if you're really feeling like, I hate this person's guts, I do not want them to be happy, forget it, I'm not giving them this. You know, you can't really do it if you're paying attention. So when you give something, even if it's something you don't want much, there's some affectionate, caring, connected feeling going with it, some non-attachment in the mind. And the act of giving itself strengthens our understanding, our experience of the sense of unity between one another. It's a very connecting act. Also possibly it gives rise to metta, to compassion, often giving out of a sense of compassion for somebody else's need. And so we find that giving does, as a practice, help to cultivate these positive, wholesome qualities of mind. And you might find that they will arise more easily when we're working, when we're giving in some way, working with generosity in some way, even if it seems, if they seem difficult or not so accessible at other times, the very act of generosity, when we're giving with as clear an intention as possible, it engenders a happy feeling in the mind, a sense of lightness. It engenders non-attachment and non-hatred, a sense of connectedness, a sense of caring, a sense of clarity. So it's really a lovely practice. I want to emphasize again, too, that the act of generosity really strengthens, it brings a great sense of unity between the two individuals, or between... uh, (laughs) You never know. People in general. It takes one out of one's self-absorbed, cut-off little sense of world, me, 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 Referring back to me at that moment isn't happening. The energy is pouring out, connecting with another. I could see this. The effect that working with generosity over time has in some of my Thai friends. I think of one woman in particular who, once when um, I was sick, she took me into her apartment for a month She would get up at five and cook me breakfast. She'd come home from work and cook me lunch because I couldn't eat 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 it afternoon. And uh, we just spent a lot of time together. And she was just giving, giving with this huge joy. And it wasn't because we had known each other before. She didn't know me from anyone. She was giving to the Dharma, to support the Dharma. And you could see the sense of growing, a real strength and peacefulness, and an easy 
willingness to give, not just giving anything you know that you don't need, but giving where it's appropriate, where there's a need. And such a sense of lovely presence and strength and peace that there was about this woman. Um, and her main practice was this. So in using generosity, dana, as a path, again, I want to emphasize that attention to our volition, to our intentions in the giving, is a very important part of this. Because it's possible, as we all know, to be outwardly very generous and inwardly doing it for some, totally some self-serving motivation, like some really rich person who gives huge amount of money to something, but they just want their name all over it and it'll help their business. You know, this isn't what we're talking about in working with generosity as a practice. But just paying attention to our motivation, it won't always be pure. But this is where the mindfulness practice is so helpful. We're not looking at the intention to judge ourselves, but just to notice. And in bringing continually mindfulness to it, we'll find that our intentions will purify of themselves. So some things to work with in an actual act of giving. And when I talk about giving, I also include uh, the sense of service, giving one's energy, giving one's time. And the first, as I said, is mindfulness to the volition really paying attention to it, allowing it to purify as much as possible before actually giving. This, this, this way of thinking about it inspires me a lot, um, a way of describing the generous act of the bodhisattvas who are, have dedicated their lives to serving all beings, which is in the giving to, to have the understanding that with this act may all beings be free from suffering, including myself. That's giving a huge power to the act of giving, whether you're giving a cookie or a year of your life, but doing it with the pure intention of may all beings, including myself, be freed from suffering with the purity of this act. And the next is to see the clinging that we might have to the object, to our time, to whatever it is that we're giving, to see that clinging. And in the seeing, as much as possible, to abandon it. Again, not by forcing or judgment, but just through the power of the mindfulness, through the power of seeing. If it's possible to do so, it is sometimes advised to give, if it's an object, to actually give it hand to hand. And when I first heard this, I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, that's kind of nice. But I had an experience as after I sat for two months this summer with Upandita, and actually it was from, not him, but the translator, Unyanupanik, who, who actually said this, you should give hand to hand. And I had given Upandita a book um, while I was sitting, and he asked me to sign it. So I signed it and just kind of put it down. And he said, no, come over here, hand it to me. And he made me hand it to him. The power of the giving 
it was it was like increased 20 times because there was this real direct person to person contact looking in his eyes it actually made me acknowledge it was a acknowledgement with my whole being that I was giving this to him as an act of generosity as a movement of appreciation it is as if taking responsibility for the act very powerful much more than just kind of giving and putting it down it's having real confidence real faith in the power of the motivation the intention of generosity it's not like saying oh this book's so wonderful you know you should have it's the actual intention and really being fully present in it not doing it half-heartedly and the metta that flowed both from him back and forth between us was very powerful. It was very interesting and very instructive. And so I understand now why giving hand to hand or in a way that's really acknowledging what you're doing, not because you're wanting something back from the person, but for your own being to be acknowledging fully, yes, this is what I'm doing as an expression of generosity. But please while you're on retreat here. Forget this one. I mean, aren't you knocking on each other's doors and saying, I want to give you this cookie hand-to-hand? <laughs> the appropriateness of the situation. Give with your mind totally focused on the giving. Again, this is just pure mindfulness. Do what we're doing with full attention. Afterwards, again, being aware of our intention, of any changes in it, as often it will change. And just being aware of that, that the whole working with the purification of our mind and heart through intention is not over as soon as the gift is given. It's really being carefully observant after that. And I'd also like to add that another very, what I've been learning is a very important part of dana generosity, is to apply these same concepts, these same ways of working, if you're the recipient. Because sometimes allowing a generosity to flow and being a really a fully present, open recipient is just as much an act of dana or generosity as the giving. And sometimes it's much harder. So back to even just taking a compliment. How hard is it to really open and just say, thank you very much. I appreciate that. To really let that in. And when we can't, or someone tries to give us something, it's, oh, well, no, no, I don't deserve that. You shouldn't give it to me, on and on. What's the effect of that? In that moment in our own heart, what's the effect? We're blocking off a sense of connectedness. We're kind of shutting the door on that outflowing unity of a heart of generosity and just saying, no, no, actually we're referring everything back to me. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve it. Separation. So I've been finding working with learning to receive with the same sense of non-attachment and the same full power of presence is a very wonderful and difficult practice. And it, it also engenders a power of non-attachment and connectedness in the mind.
One other aspect I want to mention of working with generosity or dana is the aspect of service. Again, it's the same motivation, the same outpouring of the heart, the same non-attachment. And what I want to emphasize about it, what comes to my mind when I'm contemplating a sense of service as a practice of non-attachment, of growth and compassion. Some of the aspects are joy, but also a great simplicity, uh, a humbleness. Again, coming back to the key is our motivation. You know, it's not what we do. Often we tend to think that if I'm really going to be doing service and have it count as a practice, it's got to be something really special. I know when I was a kid, somehow I got into reading these books by Dr. Tom Dooley, who who ran these uh, hospitals in Vietnam in the 50s, and I would be incredibly sorry. That's what I've got to do. I've got to go off into the jungle somewhere and run a hospital in these really uh, extreme conditions. And you know, tend to think it has to be something that makes a difference, that really makes an impact. And that's not what it's about at all. That it, as a path, it's about our intention, our motivation, and it can be very simple, very humble. A great inspiration to me in this way is the Dalai Lama. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was out in California for a couple of days to go to a two-day uh, teaching that he was giving. And even though you know he's such a great man, he just won the Nobel Prize, and incredibly developed, very learned, when he speaks, the sense, the overwhelming sense one gets is of such simplicity and down-to-earthness and just basic kindness, nothing so special. And one of the things he said when he won the Nobel Prize and people were heaping up all these praises, he said, you know, I'm just a simple Buddhist monk, no more and no less. And the thing about him is, you know that he really means that. It's not just posturing to look that way. And so, even though the idea of who he is might be someone who has this incredible life and is so special, the reality of being in his presence brings the whole thing down to earth again. That here's a person who lives a life that seems, from what one can tell from the outside, to be completely dedicated to service, to the service of all beings, you know, without exception. And the qualities that one encounters are just this simplicity, kindness, and down-to-earthness. Nothing so special, nothing so out of our experience or out of our reach. You know, we don't have to be Mother Teresa to work with using service as a path of generosity. It's just little acts in the moment. One story I heard when I was in India, which really struck me, just somebody off on their own that no one ever heard of, just devoting their life to service, even if it's something that seems crazy to us. There's a person who is a devotee of Neem Karoli Baba, and he had a house somewhere, and he was just devoting his life to feeding anybody who came by. Now, in India, that could be a lot of people. But they said, the person told me the story, said, when he sees cows coming, he calls for chapatis. 
and chapatis are like these flat pancakes. And he has 12 people cleaning his house when two could quite easily clean it. But he say, well, then I could only feed two. This way I get to feed 12. It's just nothing so special, but really inspiring to me. It can be quite simple. This is from Robert Aitken. Our task, too, is to respond generously to others. We can take as our models not only Shakyamuni the hermit and our other great Dharma ancestors, but also such humble beings as bushes and grasses. With every fiber, beings of the plant world are guiding others, conveying their vitality to the soil, water, air, insects, animals, and people. This is the harmony of universal symbiosis. And it is also our own way of realizing and actualizing that unity. How do we actualize the oneness of all beings? Through responsibility, meaning the ability to respond, like that of the clover. When clover is cut, its roots die and release their nitrogen, and the soil is enriched. New seeds fall, take root, mature, and feed other organisms. Clover doesn't think about responsibility, and neither did Shakyamuni, it's another word for the Buddha. He simply arose from his seat and went looking for his friends to teach them. The clover simply puts down its roots and puts up its leaves and flowers. And so sometimes I feel like that's one of the aspects, what our path of mindfulness, of generosity, is about. It's not to change into something grand, something special, something else. In some ways we become more ourselves than ever. It's much more allowing the peace, the truth that's already here in our experience to emerge. It's Aiken again. The human being does not become an angel, but rather finds affinity with the silent clover. So it really can be very simple. We don't have to make it into something grand and unattainable to work with these positive qualities of mind, a state of generosity as a path to our own opening and understanding. And even our practice itself can become an aspect of service. Again, when we're working with looking at intention, with our motivation. Even though often it seems like in practice we're sitting here completely self-centered, just wanting the next pleasant state to come, or wanting, please God, to be free from this particular suffering that's happening right now. But meditation practice can also become a very powerful expression of the sense of dana, 
and also a great cultivation of it. Because the more we practice, our intention purifies of itself when we're practicing mindfulness with sincerity. We can't help but begin to see that we're not separate from society. As Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, when we come in here to sit, we're bringing all of society with us. And as the Dalai Lama says, I'm paraphrasing, but to bring peace, real peace, into the world, it's about finding what real peace is. And that's about developing it in ourselves and from there bringing it out into the world. And so when we're practicing with this understanding, which comes and goes, but developing it, being aware when it is there, our practice itself can become one of the most powerful expressions of interconnectedness, of non-attachment, of generosity that there is. As the Dalai Lama expressed it, talking about the development of a heart and mind of wisdom, saying that one practices for the benefit, saying to oneself, that for the benefit of all sentient beings, I will aspire to achieve complete enlightenment. And that's really powerful. When we feel that we're practicing for all sentient beings, and that includes ourselves, I find it gives such a strength, a power, to our practice. So much more able to be with whatever comes. Because it's not about getting rid of this state so I can have some other state. But yes, even in this moment, as difficult as this moment is, as much as it's not what I would wish to be happening, I'm cultivating a sense of non-attachment, a sense of service, of generosity. And this understanding contributes to the release of suffering of all sentient beings. And it's a very powerful way to practice. It makes it much more rich, as if it could be more rich. Let's sit for a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.